Hello and welcome to Women of the Middle East podcast. This podcast relates the realities of Arab women and their rich and diverse experiences. It aims to present the multiplicity of women's voices, and it wishes to break cultural stereotypes about women of the Middle East, as well as educate and empower the younger generation of Middle Eastern women who were stripped of their historical reference and weren't necessarily raised to believe in their agency and power to create their own destiny. I'm Amal Malki. I'm a feminist, scholar, and educator. I'm also the author of Arab Women in Arab News, Old Stereotypes and New Media. I created this podcast to be an extension and an update of the book and its main topics. Welcome to a new and a special episode of Women of the Middle East podcast. This episode is a special one. Um, and given the, the importance of the topic, of course, uh, which is um, violence against women and the surge of violence against women during a COVID-19 pandemic. A global pandemic that resulted in a sudden and economic uh, wrecking uh, lockdown um, had a graver impact than economy for sure. While the world took a slower pace, um, many injustices surfaced. Or maybe, uh, as some may say, they were always there on the surface, but we were too busy to pay attention. One of these injustices is violence against women or gender-based violence, and in particular, domestic violence. The UN um, Women at the United Nations entity dedicated to gender equality and the empowerment of women called it the shadow pandemic and launched a public awareness campaign focusing on the global increase in domestic violence amid the COVID-19 health crisis. For those who are in the world, uh, the so-called Middle East, we know that violence against women predated COVID-19 and that COVID-19, like any other external factor, let it be war, economic crisis, etc., intensified the problem and not only highlighted it. It certainly exacerbated the issue by deepening women's pre-existing vulnerabilities. Just imagine women locked up with their abusers, women in refugee camps, women in conflict and war zones, uh, unemployed and broke women, women who are shunned by their families and communities, women belonging to minorities with limited rights and privileges, all of which describe women in the Middle East. Another thing we know is during this global pandemic, the responses um, to the violence against women took a, ba- took a back burner. At the beginning of the lockdown, courts and legal services, police, shelters and social services closed and, and, and shut down in many countries, leaving women subjected to violence or survivors of violence stranded in a very cruel reality. However, civil societies stood up and took care of what the formal institutions couldn't. Today, we meet with two exceptional leaders in this arena to discuss very, this very uh, important and pressing issue. I'm very happy to welcome uh, Ms. Asma Khadr, a lawyer and advocate of human rights and women empowerment, who served as her knowledge uh, um, who served her knowledge and career um, in, um, for the past 50 years in Jordan and the region and has made her sought-after expert um, in the advocacy and, and campaigning of women issues. 
as well as legal analysis, drafting laws and policy reform in the region and in Jordan in specific. She's a former minister of culture and former Senate, spokesperson for the government, and now is the CEO and consultant of Solidarity is Global Institute. Uh, I'd like to welcome uh, Ms. Asma. Um, I'm also very honored to have uh, Dr. Al-Anoud al-Sharikh. Uh, Dr. Al-Anoud is um, the director of Abtikar Strategic Consultancy, leading political leadership and diversity training programs in Kuwait and the GCC region, and has held senior consultative and teaching positions in academic government and non-government institutions in the Arabian Gulf and abroad, and is a board member of several academic and non-governmental organizations. She is the chairperson of the very well-known campaign Abolish 153 to end honor killing legislations and a co-founder of Mudawiz List, a platform to support women running for political office in Kuwait. I'd like to welcome both Al-Anoud uh, and Asma, and I'm very, very, very happy to have you today to talk about this very important um, issue. And let me begin by actually asking to um, uh, both of you, um, when we speak about the surge of numbers um, of violence against women during COVID, is it real? Yani has the numbers really increased during the pandemic or has it always been that bad? Would you be tell me more about the numbers from your um, region and, and the cases that you would like to retell in this specifically? Um, again, has it always been that bad or has COVID actually resulted in the surge of the numbers? Ustada um, Asma? Well, again, thank you so much. And it's my pleasure and honor to be with you both. And I think it's a very uh, important topic that needs uh, us to go further, uh, digging more deeper uh, to understand this uh, phenomena and to respond to the needs and to be as realistic as clear about it. Because saying it's there uh, in increasing numbers needs to be approved and saying that no 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 we don't have this also needs to be approved on the ground yes one out of three everywhere in the world is a victim of one kind or another of gender-based violence this was before pandemic it was the pandemic before pandemic because the victims of gender-based violence in numbers and deaths in fact if we count it it will be much more Nobody is counting this around the world. So uh, 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 women are still uh, uh, victims, are still subject of gender-based violence in different forms. Uh, as uh, our colleague uh, Lanoud was interested in, uh, in the encouraging women political participation, for example, political violence and bullying against uh, candidates and against women voters and against, against women activists is really very clear, which was not physical usually, but it was very hurting and very bad. So uh, there are types of gender-based violence. Uh, maybe it's not uh, uh, physical uh, hurt or, or uh, signs, but uh, sometimes it is more even worse and bad and have negative impact. Uh, for us at SIGI, 
from the very beginning of the last uh, March in, uh, in the beginning of the year 2020, uh, we realized that we are receiving much, much calls for our uh, helpline uh, uh, at, at, the, at the organization and through our social media and emails uh, from women suffering from domestic, uh, domestic violence. Absolutely, we received in two months between the mid of March and the mid of May uh, more than 1,000 uh, uh, cases. Uh, this 1,000 cases, we used to receive them in one year. So you can see easily the increase of numbers. Of course, I cannot be very يعني, naive to say that it's only because the increase of numbers, also because of the lack of uh, services. Uh, the, the, the family department unit was nearly not ready to, to receive, the other NGOs was closed, uh, the activists who are serving were not on job for a reason or another, so uh, uh, their families who use, uh, usually are the, 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 the shelter for them. They leave the home and running to their families. They were not allowed to move. So their families were not around them. So I do believe that there was some increase, of course, in, in, uh, uh, in the practice itself, in the, in the crimes, uh, violence crimes, but uh, it is not everything. There are elements, other elements, which push the numbers to be increased in this way as a uh, for us as SIGI. Officially, it was mentioned that the increase in numbers reaches 36%. Uh, and maybe this is the average that is more, uh, more uh, logical, to be frank. Despite of this, I think having the perpetrators, the violent persons in one place with the families, with the whole number, members of the family, with the burden of of the duties with the lack of resources, worrying from lo losing their jobs, their, their financial resources, uh, worrying from the pandemic itself and, uh, and the possibility to be affected or uh, infected. And also uh, the, the feeling that you don't have a, a place to, to escape from gender-based violence. Uh, all of this put a lot of pressure over the, the all members and it was uh, يعني, uh, reflecting uh, the, the tense that everybody is feeling. In some families, it was more close relations and, uh, and you know, support each other. In many other families, it was a violent and families were kicked out from their home to sleep in the streets. Two, three families reported that we are in the streets. It's, there is no cars. We don't. We, we we cannot move, and we don't know where to go. And and the, it happened. In fact, in in many in many situations, of course, being stuck with a violent person also is is very very hard to do. Lack of services such as health services. The the priority was given to the pandemic, and they were they were telling everybody that if you are not in in, uh, يعني, a serious case, it's better not to go to any clinic or any hospital. So uh, there was a very complicated situation. And I think this makes the harmful 
uh, impact of the violence even much more than usual, psychologically and physically as well. So yes, I think it was increased. The problem is that we were not prepared uh, previously uh, to respond to the crisis. We never expected this type of crisis. And even with the refugees uh, uh, issue and with the uh, victims of, uh, of uh, uh, you know, uh, wars and, and uh, uh, conflict uh, situations were not the same. It was different. And I think what we learn now is that we need to be prepared with ongoing services. And we need the governments to take into consideration women's needs under this pandemic. For example, we were not allowed to move while many other service providers were given license to move. Civil society were not. And specifically, uh, social workers and psychologists and legal uh, uh, experts or consultants were not allowed to move and to provide services to women uh, victims of gender-based violence. Also, the, the access to justice was lacking because courts were closed and to whom she may uh, report. Uh, the police were not ready to, to take actions in cases that is, in their opinion, not uh, very, uh, uh, not an emergency situation. Uh, it's not a priority. So we, we, we used to listen, even when we call that there is a woman under danger, you need to move now and to, to, to shelter her somewhere else. Uh, for example, they may say, well, uh, we are now dealing with a very serious other issue, which is the, the COVID and, and the, uh, the, the, the pandemic. So I think, yes, we suffered from, from all these uh, unhealthy type of relations. Uh, the, 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 the fear and the worrying uh, situation, everybody was living uh, under it and the stress of, of all the elements of, of the health and economy and, and, uh, uh, and education of children and all of this. And of course, lack of services that is available on time uh, and in a, an appropriate way for, for uh, people who are, or persons who are uh, victims of gender-based violence. Of course, when I say gender-based uh, violence, we automatically look to the to women. But also, I have to say that there are uh, also violence against disabled persons, violence against older persons, uh, violence against uh, uh, children that was also increased. And to give you an idea, the, uh, the murders uh, during the pandemic, the, the, the lockdown, the lockdown situation was uh, decreased uh, in terms of murders, yani. but it jumped dramatically uh, immediately after open opening out based on the very tense relation that was uh, happening during the pandemic. And, and we, we witnessed a jump from seven victims of uh, what we call it family uh, murders uh, that happened during uh, 2019, it jumped to 20 uh, murders in, in the same category in, in uh, 2020. And this year we started with, with a very uh, violent uh, cases that we witnessed. 
But I think uh, there is a growing awareness and a growing uh, supporters within the judiciary, within the police, within the uh, officials uh, to take measures uh, more tough than before. And also uh, the, the movement of the civil society in each time there is a woman victims of gender-based violence or a c crime, um, sometimes a murder uh, uh, within the family is now uh, facing a great response by the civil society organizations. Of course, there are others who are attacking and uh, who are using the argument of foreign agenda or, uh, or you know, interference of the gen uh, Western values and uh, groups who are trying to damage the unity of the family and all of this. It's normal and usual, but I think the priority is uh, the right to live, the right to be safe and the right to get uh, the help you need when you are victim of gender-based violence. Um, uh, you said that you said that um, many of the cases were not even reported. No. So we only know that the ones that were reported. What about those who were not reported? How were they exposed? Were they exposed by new media, social media, um, and how did the social media play a role, especially for your institution? Um, I've noticed that um, some institutions um, have actually uh, benefited from WhatsApp, for example, more than, let's say, Twitter or other forms of social media. Yeah. You know, when you are in the same home, even calling is, is a challenge because she has to call while the person is sitting there all the time. So it's even, even difficult. Of course, we use the WhatsApp, we use the... Uh, the dig digital clinic that we have and uh, they can uh, use the Facebook, the whatever the, they can use. But also we sometimes receive reports by neighbors who are, uh, yani, uh, get the, to know that there is something uh, happening and we are trying to interfere. But to be frank, yes, many are, even they make a decision they don't want to report because they know that maybe the impact of reporting sometimes is even more worse than not reporting. And many of them kept silent because the, the punishment is light, the process is going to be hard, the choices of women is limited. She don't know where to go, who is going to spend uh, money for their life, where, uh, where she can live, uh, is the family, her family ready to receive her or not? Uh, is she go, going to be able to take responsibility of herself and her, her children? Uh, is there a possibility to, to reach uh, her rights through the court procedures under the lockdown because there is no courts? Women who have already judgments in, in uh, alumni, for example, were not able to go and, and, and uh, receive it, even if they have it. So there, there, there was uh, a lot of challenges that is not necessarily linked with with COVID. Sometimes it is structurally uh, there already in the in a patriarchal society where women are uh, relying on in their life on others. And that uh, in, in Jordan we have the the uh, lowest percentage of women in the labor market. We have only 14 percent of women in the age of work in the labor market. And m many of them lost their, their, their jobs or their salaries were cut or whatever 
challenges that everybody knows happened after pandemic. So the problem is really rooted in the culture, rooted in the uh, lack of equal relation in the society, is rooted in the weakness of the institutional uh, social protection uh, network, uh, despite of being uh, from the NGO side or from the governmental side, and lack of, uh, of appropriate legislation that, uh, that is taking يعني, all this into consideration. And what is promising is this kind of discussion that we have it with officials sometimes and with others, and the lobbying for a better laws, because we went through this, uh, uh, this campaign of, uh, of uh, fighting against the honor crimes, uh, light sentences in Jordan, and we were able in 2017 to abolish Article 308, which we campaigned against it. The article was allowing the perpetrator in rape and sexual crimes to marry the, uh, the victim and go free without any punishment. So we put an end to this and this article was abolished totally. Litigation uh, reasons that was used in case of, uh, of defending the honor of the family uh, was, was also amended and it is not anymore accepted. So there are some achievements happened and it was a result of the NGOs uh, lobbying and, uh, and activities, but it is not up to the, يعني, to the goals that we set for ourselves to see uh, equal laws uh, and appropriate laws uh, dealing with all aspects of gender equality, but in more specific protection for victims of gender-based uh, gender violence. Because it's not only about laws, and we'll come back to this um, uh, in a bit. Al-Anud, uh, um, there were many um, cases of violence against women in Kuwait that uh, surfaced or appeared um, uh, recently that shook everyone. Um, was this Has this been a pattern or has this um, been generated by the lockdown? Is COVID responsible? What do you think? Um, well... Uh, I'd like to start by thanking you for having this difficult conversation with us today and for uh, hosting me and uh, hosting uh, this wonderful woman that we all learn from, Sit uh, Asma. It's an honor to share this uh, platform with you. Uh, I, I would say that in Kuwait we don't have official numbers, so it's very difficult to uh, ascertain if the numbers have gone up during COVID or not. But what we definitely know from our work in the Abolish 153 campaign and in Ithar, because the survivors of domestic abuse reach out to us, is that the numbers have definitely increased during the, the lockdown. And uh, this is something that other aspects have echoed in um, newspaper uh, interviews. So um, it is, it is uh, problematic because we can't really say if this has uh, shifted because of COVID, or uh, it's uh, an ongoing pattern. And you're talking about the the cases that made the news in the last year. There were there were uh, at least three very upsetting cases of uh, 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 murders perpetuated against women by their uh, brothers. Uh, uh, and the latest one uh, 
was unfortunately a, a guard at the National Assembly. So it was her job to protect our legislators, but uh, we failed at protecting her. We, uh, I mean, as a community, as uh, a legal framework, as a social framework. And it was really um, heartbreaking to see that uh, there, there wasn't a kind of a formal stand that was taken by her colleagues at the National Assembly or by the government. Um, but uh, what we what we have is certainly that the media is shedding more light on these cases than it used to. And sometimes that is also part of the problem because the way that the media sometimes handles these cases uh, is by um, a kind of finding a narrative that makes sense of a, of a brutal act of violence that, that is irrational. Uh, so uh, recently there was a reported case where um, a murder happened, also perpetuated by a brother against a sister, but it was reduced to two years, to a misdemeanor in just two years, uh, because it was handled, uh, and, and this is the way that it was reported, uh, it was it was seen as a disciplinary violence act. And, and sadly, Kuwait, like Jordan, we have the 153 article, which is the honor killing article. We have the 182, which is the, the kidnap and marry article, which you have successfully abolished in Jordan, but we have yet to, to remove. And we have article 29 of our penal code, which allows for what I call disciplinary violence. So uh, a male guardian can discipline uh, a woman or, or even um, find a substitute. Yeah, there's a, there's a wakil involved <laughs> to to discipline her, uh, and this this makes it both thorny and problematic. What what we have managed to achieve despite COVID is that we have finally passed a domestic violence law in Kuwait, uh, and uh, I'm proud to say that the organizations that I am involved in, as well as others within Kuwait's very um, active civil society uh, had a big role to play in pushing this law through uh, and uh, although it, it didn't kind of deal with everything that we were hoping that it would it did set a very important precedent because before uh, this law was passed uh, we really didn't have any legal cover for helping survivors, for trying to rehouse them, uh, protecting them from uh, their their family members and their abusers, etc. But now we do have a, a legal framework, and and this legal framework should empower the social police, who are supposed to be the first kind of uh, the the first responders in these cases. But before there was a domestic violence law. Uh, they they were uh, they they were very limited in what they could offer in terms of help. So we are hopeful that there's going to be a national council to look into family protection, and there's going to be a review uh, of uh, the laws uh, that kind of conflict with the spirit of protecting families from violence, and also that the the, the family protection law has within it a provision that penalizes those who try to, to um, get, get uh, uh, victims or survivors of abuse to change their mind or to not report. So, so they, they actually would get penalized. Um, what, what we are still lacking is a sexual harassment law. 
that's what we're still lacking. Although there, there are some articles that, that discuss this and deal with it, there's not, there's not a stand alone, a law. And there's, there's a sexual harassment uh, uh, kind of uh, phenomena that's going on. Uh, and people have a very laissez-faire attitude towards it. Boys will be boys, you know. If if somebody's following you uh, on the street, uh, if if they if they uh, catcall you, ah, uh, you know, it, are are you sure you were dressed properly? Are you sure you didn't uh, incite it? So there's this victim blaming narrative that goes on in how the media portrays it, you know. And and when when things escalate and they become reported crimes, then you find this this message uh, within the reporting that says, uh, but you know, despite the fact that the woman was dressed uh, in a modest way, she still got her. I mean, these these messages need also to be rehabilitated. It's not enough that we we change uh, legislations and that we force an open conversation about this. We need to change the way that the media reports these things and and the way that that we allow conversations to happen and sometimes online is a blessing because for us uh we we could do a litmus test we could we could see where the appetite was uh we could um, you know find out what what others were doing and i'm and i'm proud to say that uh, abolish and, and ethar learned a lot from those who came before us, especially in Jordan and especially in Lebanon. Uh, but at the same time, it's an area that's fraught with risk for women. And it doesn't matter uh, if you're an academic or an activist you're, you're, or a politician. And, you know, I love uh, Sita Asma that you spoke about political bullying because it would always list we try to support women running for elected office and we try to provide a safe space for a very different kind of narrative that's going on in mainstream media. Uh, and we, we, we see and we hear from these brave women how much trolling and abuse they're subjected to. Uh, I've, I've been subjected to it because I speak about issues that are, that are you know that is, that are sensitive to some and go against the patriarchal brain. Uh, I'm sure both you and uh, Dr. Amal have been subjected to it, and sometimes it's just the burden of of uh, stereotypical ambassadorship. Sometimes it can be as simple as, well, the way you look doesn't represent uh, an Arab woman or a Muslim woman, so so I'm going to discount everything that you've said. And like you've said, you know this this uh, uh, I think tired accusation of a Western agenda or, or being uh, motivated by having studied in the West, whereas uh, our best economists and doctors and engineers and lawyers, they've all been educated in the West and it doesn't seem to, yeah, it doesn't seem to detract from, from their credentials, it adds to it. But, you know, when you, when you have a feminist agenda and when you have a humanist agenda, then it becomes problematic. Absolutely. You speak about online um, venues as a blessing, but you know that the increase in violence against women uh, was also mirrored online. Um, there was an online violence as well. Um, why would why would you think that uh, happened, and how do um, or did you deal with it if it happened uh, in your case? Alanud. <laughs> oh um, well, you know, um, every time uh, we bring up the subject of honor killings and we speak about uh, the 
the concept of honor being uh, a very uh, plastic one, right? So it, it can be specified in the law that uh, an act of adultery needs to have happened for it to be considered an, an honor killing. But the, the girls that you spoke about, the women that were murdered in, in hospitals and in their work and, and in their beds, in their homes where they're supposed to feel safe, they were murdered in the name of honor, but that honor uh, wasn't related to their acts. They didn't do anything that would that would be considered uh, sexually deviant, for example. They chose to marry outside of the tribe, or they chose to work in fields that weren't accepted, or they chose to dress in a way that was uh, deemed unacceptable uh, to their families, etc. So, so uh, this idea of of uh, honor is problematic because people can define it in in these loose uh, loose terms and so when when we when we say that there is no justification for murder there is no justification for murder there is no justification for murder you'd be surprised by how many uh, would challenge that and say no there are justifications for murder uh, a man's honor is more important uh, than uh, than a woman's life basically and and the way to to regain that honor is by killing her and this is of course un-islamic it's inhumane it's against uh, constitutions and and all international agreements that were ratified by our countries but you can see that there's kind of hesitancy when it comes to challenging this uh, idea of, of male honor. Uh, and it, it gets reflected online. We, uh, we, um, we, we were accused of, you know, trying to um, uh, morally corrupt uh, people by, by going after the honor killing law. Uh, and uh, it, it, was, it was framed as maybe we weren't aware and if we were we were corrupting, but we weren't aware of our corruptive influence. And so our response to that was also online. Our response to that was, who needs an honor killing article? Who is this person who thinks that in the future, their family might misbehave and they might just need to kill them? Who is this person? So, so we need people to stand up and say, yes, I think we might need it in future. And I think that is more dishonorable uh, than than uh, trying to get rid of an honor killing uh, uh, article, uh, and I, I think it's uh, it's an important conversation to have. Why do people think they need it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, this is the first time I uh, I hear an argument that takes us to that question. Yes, who needs such an article? You're absolutely right. Um, I have um, um, another question for both of you. Um, um, regarding your work and within your entities and how you manage to address uh, the needs of women with compounded vulnerability. So let's speak about, for example, domestic uh, migrant workers that um, um, to, to address their problems during COVID, for example, needed um, you to look at different type of laws like labor law, for example. So uh, have you dealt with such things? Because, you know, when we help women, we help women. Uh, but there are specific women that are more, more vulnerable than others, for example, domestic migrant workers, and if we speak about women with disabilities as well, uh, did you have uh, specific um, uh, responses to those two uh, groups? Uh, shall we, um, uh, uh, Sada Asmat, 
Absolutely. I, as I said, uh, there are uh, uh, complexity in, in, in what type of gender-based violence when you have more than one reason why you are dis discriminated against. So you are a woman, you are maybe disabled, and you are a refugee. Or you are a woman, you are a, a foreigner, you are a domestic worker, you are, uh, you are young sometimes. Uh, and uh, and uh, you are beautiful, maybe. <laughs> so all of this will create uh, different types of of uh, of, uh, uh, of violence and of discrimination. And of course, each group needs a specific response. We have uh, uh, at SIGI, we have a specialized person with different groups, and we have one uh, practice that I think is useful. Uh, we have coalitions that are members of coalitions. Uh, those coalitions are interested in specific work. For example, we have, and we give a, a woman name to each coalition. For example, we have the coalition for the older woman, women's rights. Uh, this coalition called Buthayna, and the group here are very much interested in rights and, uh, and complaints and uh, needs of, of older women. We have Nujud, which is for uh, uh, the um, uh, fighting against uh, early and forced marriages. So the, the Nujud network is also a group of people from around the country, from different governments, local communities, CBOs, uh, those who are interested uh, as this topic as their own priority. So they work uh, on it and they respond to the needs and they report and they have their uh, uh, trainings on specific topics related to the group. Also, there are the uh, other other co coalitions. For example, uh, we have for disabled women, we have a program we call it Aya. Aya is a woman who was uh, physically disabled and she passed away in her twenties, but she was very active to uh, to fight for uh, for disabled women and men but uh, she focused on women to access uh, different places. And she was mapping the restaurants and the hotels and the markets, supermarkets and whatever other public services where they are uh, ready to, to, to welcome uh, uh, this group of people. So those groups are specialized groups and they have members all around the country. SIGI is trying to, to, uh, to provide the, the platform and to coordinate with them. And in many cases, we encourage initiatives that is happening and by them to do something specific for this, those people. Also in the country, there are organizations who are specialized in, for example, domestic workers group. We have Tamkin, which is an NGO focusing more specifically and on uh, foreign migrant workers and domestic workers uh, in specific. So we have the coordination and the referral system where we uh, yani try to use the expertise and the specialization of different groups when we meet a case that we feel it needs a specific uh, kind of services and respond. So there is this dynamics that is, that is available. Of course, we have the National Committee for the Trafficking in Persons. And this is a committee that is dealing with if there is a domestic worker who is really exploited in a way or victims of a, some kind of new forms of slavery, 
that is happening sometimes we try to use these mechanisms so there are this uh, mapping issue that we need to have it and to make sure that we are using all the possible means and resources that are available technical or financial or uh, human uh, or even legal because sometimes something you cannot do others can do uh, for the victim so we we use that and we are trying to build a more uh, more um, strong referral system on the national level because we have some uh, initiatives but it is still not working effectively the way we we think it should so uh, we have to work more to include civil society with the official uh, entities judiciary entities that that is uh, police for example we have you call it social police uh, police i like it we have family protection department within the police uh, that they are playing a good role but it is not also enough and sometimes it's the personnel who are serving so working with them is very important because if you have a person who don't believe in gender equality but occupying a position uh, that is not going to work without a person who is sensitive to, the, to these issues is a problem sometimes especially when you have the rotation between employees you train somebody work with them for a while become very aware about the topic and the issue and and the technical parts of it to be fair uh, for women and and men equally then they move them to another place and bring new ones that you have to start from the zero point again so until this is a institutional culture and values that is integrated and enforced, in fact, to be respected by every personnel in, in, the, in the different, uh, uh, you know, uh, entities. Uh, we, will, we will see these ups and downs in dealing with the issues. So you cannot count on the institution, but on the persons in these institutions, how they think and what they can do. Yeah, but, but I agreed with you that uh, also we have a program for... Uh, uh, for we call it Salamat. Salamat is the uh, the digital safety and uh, and security. And digital security during pandemic became a, a very important topic as everybody have to use the the social uh, means, the the digital means in communication, in education, in work, in in everything. So we have uh, a digital clinic. We support uh, technical support to those who are hack, uh, hacked by somebody who are victims of, uh, of uh, uh, you know, uh, different types of crimes. Uh, some of them is sexual harassment, some of them is, is, uh, uh, is bullying, some of them is ibtizaz, uh, 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 yeah. blackmail, yeah. And, uh, and uh, other, other types, yani, uh, of, of uh, of crimes so we we provide them with technical support to avoid the problem and to uh, follow a, a safety measures in in creating accounts and dealing with these accounts and of course we have some cases take some cases to courts when there is a crime a real crime that we need to follow to follow uh, and, and uh, we have many cases that that are in in, in courts now uh, in two or three of them, we were able to get some good judgments against the perpetrators. So yes, 
Uh, I think our work is, if we look at it, it has to be um, uh, more com comprehensive than one NGO can meet. And we need this very strong kind of, uh, of coordination between different entities to be able to provide a comprehensive uh, service that can really provide uh, yeah, the protection, which is sometimes not there. Even with the laws, we have the family protection law exactly like like yours. It is not up to the uh, to the hopes, uh, but it is a start that we need to to build on it and to use it to the maximum, I think, and to exchange these experiences. I was listening and saying that well, we need to invite Al Anud and to invite our our uh, 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 partners here to to more public speeches because talking about the topics from different communities, different societies, different experiences in the region is very important because I I believe and I see that what Al Anud was saying is exactly what we are. We are facing, يعني, and I think we are learning from each other and we are together more strong. Definitely, definitely. We, we make uh, the argument that um, the commonalities um, across um, uh, societies, not just in the Middle East, but even beyond the Middle East, yes. are very, you know, they're big, huge. Um, yes. So let alone um, the commonalities between us um, and the Middle East. Elanud, what, what do you do? for um, a woman with compounded um, vulnerabilities. Amal, uh, you know, it's really interesting. Uh, you know, we're now in the age of uh, cross-sectional feminism. And uh, when you speak about compounded vulnerabilities, it's cross-sectional activism, right? Uh, for example, uh, domestic workers are naturally very vulnerable for the, the, the reasons that Sudesma stated. But in Kuwait, there is a shelter for them. There's a governmental shelter for them. For uh, national women or even expats who are not domestic workers, there's no shelter. The government has yet to open a shelter for them. So there is literally nowhere for them to go. Uh, the 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 people who oversee the domestic uh, workers shelter often call us and say uh, uh, a Kuwaiti woman or a stateless woman or a, uh, a, a non-national who isn't uh, part of the domestic workers is here with children, without children, please come help us deal with her. So, uh, so there's that. Uh, and then there is kind of the, 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 the idea that uh, women who come from tribes and strong tribe, uh, they are in, in uh, a somewhat double bind because uh, the idea of tribal honor is a very strong one as well. So uh, they can be very vulnerable uh, despite the, you know, the status that this belonging gives them. And, and it's usually very tricky for us to get involved because those tend to be the most dangerous uh, um, cases to get involved in because you're not dealing with an individual you're dealing with many uh, and and they they have this kind of intrinsic sense of tribal honor uh, that that uh, that is very much intertwined with the female and the female's body and the female's choices uh, and 
uh, it's frustrating for me that sometimes we get, uh, you know, when these cases that you spoke about came up and the ones that come up are often tribal women. And, and sometimes we get a reaction that this is uh, something to be dealt with internally within the tribal community. Uh, us being uh, urban women, you should not get involved because you do not understand this. And I understand that violence is a great equalizer. Death is a great equalizer. If women are being killed, I need to be involved. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, 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 uh, it, it also is across the board uh, that uh, uh, there is economic violence involved. So we, we had a case of uh, a young lady with disability who was taken out of uh, university, who was abused by her family, and she gets a stipend. Uh, a disability stipend from the government and and they they wanted to control that stipend and we see this play out uh, sadly a lot that the the reasons underpinning violence are often uh, economic uh, or financial you know that it, it is not just wanting to control a woman's body and her choices they want to control her income stream and as as more women enter the labor market as more women become financially independent therefore socially and perhaps politically independent, this, this comes up more often than not as a problematic issue. And you'd be surprised that women from, let's say more privileged socioeconomic uh, backgrounds who are exposed to violence, they are sometimes in the most vulnerable position because there's so much at stake that they cannot even speak about it. They cannot even admit to the violence that's being, um, you know, enacted towards them by their spouses or by their family members, etc., where uh, because they have so much uh, to lose in economic terms, and so uh, I think it is complicated and compounded wherever you are on this spectrum. Uh, I I don't think that anyone who uh, who deals with with violence can see it as a straightforward or or a simple equation, and I I think that. A very important part is also dealing with the perpetrator, because you can't just, you know, deal deal with the abuse survivor and forget the perpetrator. The, the perpetrator needs rehabilitation as well. It's a complete package, and uh, they are usually uh, survivors of abuse themselves. So, I sometimes worry about the positioning because we are so worried about the the. Um, abuse survivors as we should be because some of them you know their their lives are being threatened uh, that we, we forget that there is a, another component that needs our attention and needs our help and, and needs our compassion despite the fact that they may be behaving in in a way that is very uh, difficult to sympathize with yes i agree with you um Idealists um, uh, get fixated on laws. Uh, realistic uh, talk about um, the cultural um, revolution, basically, um, within our societies. It's not just the laws and legislations, right? Um, it's the norms, the social norms, um, 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 the way we indoctrinate um, um, uh, those patriarchal norms into the generations and generations of boys and girls. Um, uh, you spoke um, 
um, Sada Asma about um, crisis management and the need of gender-specific responses for crisis management. If, and I think this is a very nice topic for a uh, research. Uh, has um, any of our countries even thought about gender-specific uh, responses in the crisis management since the revolutions till COVID-19? Um, I doubt, I really doubt, because everywhere I know there was a hotline if you you think you have COVID. Um, some countries didn't even have hotlines for um, domestic abuse or domestic violence. Um, uh, we come to the end of the session. Um, and But this is not an end of a conversation. This is only the beginning of the conversation. Uh, feminists, um, women rights advocates, civil society, uh, won't stay silent. Uh, I think this is our um, chance now to use everything we've got. Um, social media, online venues have been heightened and highlighted uh, during COVID-19. And we've seen how online can really play a huge role in our activism. Um, and we will embrace it and we will be using it, uh, whether, you know, we're uh, subjected to uh, <laughs> online violence or not. We will be dealing with that and we will be reporting that and we will be talking to our government, our society, uh, boys, girls, um, uh, adults, men and women um, uh, and educating them and through different forms and venues. Uh, but we will fight back patriarchy, institutions, uh, outdated structures. Um, and this is only the beginning of a conversation. Uh, Sada Asma, thank you so much. Uh, there is a lot to be learned from uh, your experience and from what uh, Jordan has been doing and uh, feminists in Jordan have been doing. Um, uh, and uh, I really hope, uh, you know, that this we go back to a sense of normality where we can connect um, I personally have students who would really benefit from interning uh, for you. Uh, Dr. Al-Anwud, as usual, okay, having a conversation with you just takes me up to the moon. Um, it's it's lovely. Um, and the things That's that you true. do is lovely, right? And and again, I always say that I'm jealous, I'm jealous of you. I'm jealous of you. I enjoy the love. <laughs> Thank you so much for this very wonderful uh, uh, discussion. So, really, so I hope that we will meet again and we will continue. Definitely, definitely. I end this episode with a wish that you all stay safe and well. Take care and write to me. Mm -hmm.